My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. A few weeks ago, we talked about one of the major divisions in Haitian culture, language. We delved into the reasons that French speakers have held power in Haiti for the last 200 years, while Creole speakers have largely been excluded. Today, we're going to talk about another division in Haiti. Divisions in Haiti are important. During the turbulent last three years, I frequently ask my friends, my patients, my teachers, what they believe Haiti needs to heal. As a rough estimate, I would say that 80% give an answer related to Haitians getting along or loving one another. And this does not mean love within a family or a community. This is already present. They mean that the country is being ripped apart because the rich hate the poor and vice versa. The darker-skinned people hate the lighter-skinned people, and vice versa. Political parties despise one another. In the United States, we see this, but in my limited experience, the fractures are even deeper in Haiti. A country often has trouble growing and developing when distinct groups feel more allegiance to their faction than to the nation as a whole. Today, we're going to delve into a division that is felt deeply in Haiti, the division of location. For this exercise, and I know this is a broad generalization, I'm going to split Haiti into three divisions. This can help us as outsiders to understand the country a little better. First, there are people who are en or those that live outside cities. Next, there are people that live in cities, and then at the very top, and then at the very top, the diaspora, those that have left Haiti for other countries. Let us first talk about those Haitians that live outside cities. Again, we say that they live en dehors, which means outside in Haitian Creole. And there are a lot of terms for this segment of the population. Some of them are playful, and some of them are offensive. Again, to understand this, we must go back to history and geography. Haiti is mountainous, very mountainous. It's barely passable in some areas. When the French ran the island, runaway slaves would escape to the hinterlands, creating communities of maroons. After the French were defeated and expelled from the island, the ruling power passed to a small group of French-speaking elites, often the offspring of liaisons between the French and slaves. These people lived in the cities. The Haitian people mostly took to the mountains and wanted as little to do with the government as possible. In fact, the only way that the elites could find to tax the population was with import-export duties, waiting until the produce had to leave the mountains and come to the ports. There is, even to this day, a major difference between someone from the mountains and someone from the city. Government services are non-existent in mountain communities. No police presence, no roads, no electricity, minimal health care. What little public schools Haiti has are generally in the cities. Villages are remarkably self-sufficient. They make their own decisions. They organize groups to build the roads. There are traditional healers, pastors, and voodoo priests. They come down the mountains to sell their produce, but then return home. They would really like the government to help build roads and provide services, but in lieu of that, they really just want to be left alone. On the other hand, when we speak of city dwellers, we really are talking largely about Port-au-Prince. It is the focal point of the country. For centuries, where you lived in this city determined your social standing. For Americans, this isn't really a foreign concept. Most cities have a wealthy area and a poorer area. 
but I don't know if I've ever seen it so stark as in Port-au-Prince. Your affluence is measured by your altitude above the city. Most of the population of the city lives in a vast, hot, muggy valley. But the mountains on the south side are the retreat of the well-off. As you go up the side of the peaks, the air becomes cooler, the breezes quite nice. As you sit on a rooftop in Port-au-Prince, you can look up from the valley and see that the tops of the mountains have power, while the rest of the plain is blanketed in darkness, except for the occasional solar lights. While 15 years ago you could easily judge someone's wealth by their altitude, this muddied somewhat after the earthquake. On that January day, buildings collapsed everywhere, from the slums by the port to the posh hotels that overlooked the city. In the months and years that followed, the population, once so fractional, became sprawling and mixed. One of the largest tent settlements for the newly homeless was in Peschenville, the suburb that symbolizes prosperity for many Haitians. Consequently, while even now your area in the city can give a rough idea of one's status, there are small slums to be found in almost all corners of the capital. Port-au-Prince has unfortunately become an ever-expanding suction tube of a city, and part of that is by governmental design. To do nearly anything in Haiti, you must come to the capital. Need a passport but live eight hours away across terrible roads in the north of the country? You must come all the way to Port-au-Prince, and probably several times. Want a job with one of the major businesses? Probably need to make your way to the capital. There is tension between the people who live en dehors and those that live in the capital, because when families have too many children in the countryside to care for, they will often send the children to the capital to live as servants. These children are frequently mistreated and cast off, being forced onto the street and into gangs. As you can imagine, this creates a rift on both sides. And lastly, you have the diaspora. Diaspora simply means those Haitians that have left Haiti for another country. Now this deserves a full episode in and of itself, but let's go over the basics. There are 11 million people that live in Haiti, but there are 3.5 million Haitians that live abroad. Most of those, about 2 million, live in the United States, many in Southern Florida. About a half million live in the Dominican Republic, and then there's a smattering among Canada, Brazil, Chile, and the Bahamas. In 2020, Haiti's gross domestic product, and that's really just a measure of all the value of goods and services produced in the country, that was around $13 billion. The diaspora sent back $3.8 billion to their relatives in the country. That is very significant. In fact, the amount sent back by the diaspora dwarfs by far international donations or support. Every year, they send nearly as much as the U.S. gave after the earthquake. Understanding this division is important because each group is concerned with different issues and their lived experiences very wildly. There is a complex relationship between Haitians and the diaspora. Those who live in Haiti know that their very existence often depends on those that send money home. And these are often their brothers and sisters. But there is a tension. I've often heard people say that the diaspora enjoy Haiti more than Haitians. By this, they mean that Haiti has many activities that can bring pleasure and joy. Beautiful mountains and beaches, resorts, excellent hotels, and clubs. And yet these places are far too expensive for the average Haitian only open to the diaspora and a tiny minority of wealthy citizens. The everyday Haitian still might love Haiti, but they will not love it for the same reasons. For the diaspora, I've seen that there is a struggle. 
When they move to a country such as the United States, they are instantly labeled. They come from a poorer country, a country that others secretly view as inferior. I can only imagine how frustrating this is. And they are discriminated against. There's racism. Of course, they understand the terrible challenges of living in Haiti. Many lived through it in their youth. But when they return to their own country and see that there are things to offer, luxury, food, and beautiful peaks, it gives them pride in their heritage. And obviously, that's a good thing. But for the average Haitian who is trapped in the slums of Cité Soleil, their motivations and thoughts are very different. They are faced every day with the challenges of hunger, lack of jobs, corrupt politicians, and police, without ever having the hope of seeing the wealthy things in Haiti. A portion of these will still love Haiti, but usually for contrasting reasons. Maybe it's just their community or their family. To gain a better understanding of Haiti, one must endeavor to learn about it from all angles. Only then can we begin to have a fuller picture. Haiti's motto is Le Union Fait La Force. This is French for unity brings strength. As I have spoken with Haitians over the last two years, this is resoundingly the most common desire. As my Creole teacher put it, we must come together or we will die together. This means all Haitian people, from the diaspora to the most remote villages. It means politicians, it means the rich and the poor. For those of us that are Americans, this is an admonition to us. We must also be striving to come together, to unite more around our common nationality than our sex, state, or status. If both our countries do this, America and Haiti can have bright futures. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we have seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.